You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm happy to be joined today by Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Britta. Great to talk to you again, and thanks, everybody, for joining. Great to be here today. Uh, We've had quite a range of topics on this podcast, a great group of guests. We've run the gamut from issues impacting cybersecurity professionals to geopolitics. And today, we are going to focus on the technology to be joined by two real experts in this space, Diana Kelly and John Dixon. Diana and John, welcome. Thanks so much for joining. And Glad to be here. I'll turn it. Oh, thanks, thanks. And so, Diana, let me turn it over to you first. If you could please introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Thank you so much for having me here, Hugh and Britta. My name is Diana Kelly. I'm currently the cybersecurity field CTO at Microsoft. And I'm incredibly passionate about security and technology, and I've been practicing in the business for just about 30 years now. Fantastic. Thanks for being here. And, John, (laughs) if you could give our listeners a bit of an intro. Uh, Hugh, it's great to be here. Uh, Actually, former colleague of Diana Kelly's at KPMG uh, roughly 20 years ago. Uh, I I did not want to do the math, so perhaps 30 years, more or less. Uh, Ex-Air Force guy, ex-Dig4 person, and now I spend most of my time helping CISOs and CSOs on the fun topic of application security and DevOps security. Super. Thank you both for being willing to share your expertise with our our listeners, Shay. Um, Hugh and I have a range of ideas to throw at you, so um, let's let's jump right in. Um, Diana, I'm going to direct my first question to you. Okay. Uh, you were on our keynote stage in Singapore, where you did a fantastic job. Uh, we have a link to your session for the for the listeners to to go and review that if they're interested. And on that stage, you explored a really interesting concept, um, that of data gravity. What exactly is data gravity, and and might it be helpful in helping analysts um, in the SOC? Yeah, so data gravity is an idea that Dave McCrory actually came up with a a few years ago. And the concept is that the bigger the amount of, of data that you have, the more force, the more gravitational pull it will have to applications and services. And that force, that pull will be increased if latency and bandwidth are at a premium. So in other words, you know, basically you're getting to this big, we've got a bunch of data, what can we do with it? The apps and the services are being pulled towards it. So my colleagues and I here at Microsoft started thinking about what does that mean for security and the practice of security? And we started thinking about, well, if we've got different sets of data and think about the cloud and cloud providers have huge data balls, right? With big gravitational pulls. How can we leverage that to speed up our security analysis? And we started thinking about, well, what if we could do more of that analysis where the data resides? So rather than a company having to pull all their cloud information back into their SOC to be able to do analysis on it, what if they could do the analysis where the data resides, where that data gravity is, in fact, right up in the cloud? 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, you know, it is amazing the kinds of data stores that are being built. Yeah. Got more more data that we can ever ever hope to to actually analyze. So I love this concept. And John, let me let me ask you. You know, related to this, we're seeing more and more technology practices and shifts in approaches that are happening around how to holistically secure an organization. And and I'm curious. You know, as people kind of take a step back and think about. What is real risk? What is security? How are they thinking about the application piece of this? Specifically DevOps. You know, you you get this this feel of DevOps and it's agile and geez, let us adapt on the fly and you know, this is broken, but now I've fixed it. How do you translate that into the world of risk management and security? Well, I would say first of all, there's this you know huge shift going on. It's not just about how software's being built; it's also where software lives. And if you go back to the you know the olden days, like five years ago, I mean, you had you know software was created inside the enterprise, was deployed in the data center in the enterprise, and everything was fairly well known and quantified. Uh, you had a security team that was pretty good about creating essentially boundaries in the form of uh, perimeter protections. Now you have this, you have software that is being built all over the place. It's being, uh, you know, deployed in, you know, what we call hybrid environments, some in the cloud, some in multiple clouds, some on-prem. And so the real challenge is, uh, you know, knowing where this exists and where it's built. And I said that's the starting point for any security person is to understand kind of where this, where the activities live. Uh, with DevOps, you know, that's certainly a buzzword, certainly coming right after uh, Black Hat. And, uh, you know, uh, but I would say that the way to put it is that there is an imperative to cut costs, i.e. cloud, and to go faster, DevOps. And so the opportunity for us is to understand where that 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 attack surface lives, i.e., where software lives, and then secondly, how do we effectively shoehorn in security tests to make sure that as part of a deployment process, the security testing just happens as in the background. Uh, so that is probably at the very highest level uh, what's going on right now, and on top of it, the threats are mutating. So you've got the good guy side changing rapidly, the other side mutating, and, you know, we have to keep track of both. I want to jump in there, um, actually combining where you where Diana had gone and then, uh, John, where you just went. And it is interesting when we talk about technology and we talk about these, um, you know, lots of different trends impacting all of us and lots of discussions of, quote, boundaries. Um, you know, boundaries in the old days of security were, were a little bit easier to, um, to establish and, you know, what was, what was out and what was in, and that's all changed um, in our current ecosystem. And this is making us um, – think and approach differently how we secure our organizations. Um, Diana, let's go back to where you were talking to the cloud um, and how has, how has this new boundary and what lives there, what lives on-prem, what's, what's where, how is cloud security a shared responsibility between the CSP and the customer? 
Yeah, thank you, Britta. That's a, a really good one. Because I think a lot of times, you know, early on, as, as John was saying, you know, back in the dark ages of five years ago, but yeah, at first there was a real concern about moving to the cloud among security professionals for exactly the reason that you said. When you, As admins, we felt comfortable with here's our inside and here's our outside, and, and I don't know if I want to trust all of my really most precious data up into the cloud. And as we've seen the cloud mature and what cloud providers mature, there's actually been this really interesting turn where some organizations are going to the cloud specifically because they're saying, you're the security experts. I'm a, you know, a, a, a accounting firm or I'm a, a dentist, right? You know, we don't have a lot of security experts here necessarily. So we actually are looking to the cloud to provide security for us. And both of those have reality and truth in them. So the shared responsibility is an attempt to try and take a look at what's the responsibility of the cloud provider, but then also what's in complete partnership between the cloud provider and the user of the cloud. And depending on what you're doing in the cloud, whether it's platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, that shared responsibility shifts a little bit. And the cloud provider, their big responsibility is to do what they've said that they're going to do for security. If patching is on their remit, then they make sure that they patch, for example. But also to communicate with the customer so they understand what's their responsibility and what isn't. So things like you need to have some sort of access and good logins and good passwords to be able to get to your cloud instance, for example. So a little bit like you're thinking about a car. You know, when you're driving a car down the road, if you put your foot on the brakes, it's the car manufacturer's responsibility to have built a good car where the brakes work. But if you don't put on the brakes and there's something in front of you, I guess with some of the new auto stop, maybe it would still stop, but it's your responsibility most of the time right, to actually steer that car properly and put your foot on the brakes when you need to. And that's really about uh, shared responsibility in the cloud. So it's a complete partnership between the cloud provider and the, the customer. Yeah, Dan, I hope you don't mind, but I am going to steal your car analogy there for a second to, to, ask, to ask John a different, a different question, which is, you know, what we saw over the last year is an external party putting the brakes on us, I think both from WannaCry and NotPatya. These were huge events in security. I mean, geez, there's lots of things that you could talk about with them, but it's one of the first times that I've seen multiple companies have to file in their 8K actual losses attributed to a big uh, malware outbreak, in this case, of course, ransomware. But, John, I wanted to ask you, has that changed anything? Is this, is this one different uh, in any way to you? And what do you think we can learn from the big ransomware outbreaks that we've seen over the last year or two? I think there's two things, Hugh, that we can learn. One is that everybody assumed that, you know, patching and vulnerability management was kind of passe, that it was an easy, you know, basic blocking and tackling. And those that know a little bit more about the subject realize that it's, you know, nobody does it perfectly. And there's always trade-offs between business interruption and the speed to apply patches. And so what I think we learned in, really in the last year is that, number one, most companies have grown organically their patch management process. Nobody looked at coverage issues 
really deeply. And so we, we see a lot of com- companies now going to you know have external parties look at or just review uh, what they are doing around patch management and coverage. A lot of folks have the Windows side down, but don't have the uh, everything else side. You know, uh, Unix servers, Unix uh, desktops, if they have them, and then devices. The second thing that jumps out at us about ransomware is it's made backup and recovery sexy again, and our sexy f- period because, <laughs> like, uh-huh. you can assume this is going to happen to you. And we had a, a an experience early in the year where we had a client that experienced this type of uh, activity, had a, had a ransomware attack, and then the recovery points were all over the calendar. Uh, you just assume you know, that backup is being done and the recovery tests are being done realistically in the background. It's, it's part of the CISSP core bodies of knowledge. We don't spend a lot of time on it. You know, if you're a BCP DR person, you do that. But uh, our experience has been that the recoveries uh, episodes might be a little bit jagged. So, you know, doing realistic recovery exercises, communicating back to the users uh, what happens. That's another thing that jumped out at us. I guess the third thing is, you know, while this is happening, there's a disruption in service. You've got to let your internal users know what is happening because uh, of the impact across the business. Uh, I think it, the city of Atlanta you know, had their moment in the sun recently, and just the disruption caused across the municipality was interesting. So, um, and then finally, you know, about about uh, ransomware and malware in general, so much has been focused on the outside uh, that you know this kind of is a renewed focus on the inside uh, as a as a, another ingress path. So, all those things have made it more interesting, and I don't think that. You know, most of us anticipated the you know, kind of the devastating impact these kind of attacks may have. It's interesting, and the wheels keep turning in my head on <laughs> Diana's car analogy um, because that darn car analogy. I mean, I, and I think it's because we all understand what cars are. We've all touched cars. We've ridden in cars. Yeah. We've driven cars. Um, I was even thinking about you know the policy implications. Who's responsible if the car doesn't break? Since more and more things are going computerized. But we're talking technology yeah. here, so I, I won't go into that analogy. Um, but, 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 John, going back to, so we all know cars, um, CISOs. CISOs are now having mm-hmm. to talk about security um, to people who maybe don't understand security. Security isn't the car. Mm-hmm. How, how, because we are seeing more of these security things in the news, because we do have people reading about, you know, what happened in the city of Atlanta, um, what happened to uh, the NIH, what happened to, you know, insert company organization name, are, are CISOs being able to leverage this to obtain more resources to protect their organizations, how are those conversations rolling out within organizations? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would just mention that uh, I think it's like two years ago now. I did for Diana in a previous life a podcast, <laughs> yeah. a series of podcasts on the topic. But I would say this is very interesting because if you, I'm, I'm an MBA type, and I spend a lot of time, you know, studying how organizations, companies allocate. Uh, resources on scarce projects. You know, how do they account for, um, you know, putting in two billion dollars for this new 
uh, you know, chemical production plant in Dubai, how they uh, justify putting a billion dollars into the new Apple TV. And, and they use things like MPV, net present value, internal rate of return, all these different ways to quantify the potential return on their capital investment. But when you talk about investment in security and technologies, no, I mean, all that goes out the window. So you start to do things like uh, referencing external events. You mentioned the city of Atlanta is a great example. I can cite no other business uh, function that I know that does that in a, in a recurring way. And the second component is mostly you have a technology person in the, the CISO, CSO, or maybe I, uh, CIO that's essentially selling to the rest of the business a security protection that most of the other, uh, uh, you know, le- business leaders don't understand. So you, so a trust component and a and a credibility component is really the I think biggest variable that I've seen between CISOs that have been successful and not successful. And so one of the things I recommended and have recommended over and over and over again for for CISOs and for security leaders is to build up credibility. Without an ask, to go to the key business leaders in your organization, build credibility, be perceived as an advisor, so that when some type of external event happens, you know, a la Equifax or cities of Atlanta, others, that you can then reference that and say, you know, we've been talking about this the last two years about these risk issues. Yeah, I think we're a little bit undercovered here. Here's my recommendation. I've got that magically. But you can't interact with these folks for the first time when you're asking for money. That's human nature. So I, I call it, I think, you know, consciously cultivate credibility so when that external event happens, you've got, you know, the credibility uh, stored up. You know, I think uh, old Stephen Covey used to call it emotional bank account, whatever you want to call it. But you've got that. You can then take advantage of it and say, yeah, as a matter of fact, I've been meaning to talk to you guys about this. This is what we should do. And here's an emergency funding request so that we're, you, know, you can go to your board and blah, blah, blah. So that's, yes, it's a big deal. I think the best citizens are really, really good at that. They do it naturally. But this is an acquired skill and not a genetic skill, I'd say. Yeah, I I completely agree with that, John. That you know, if you build up the trust, build up the credibility. Yeah, I've had a number of times where a CIO has asked me after I've talked to the CISO, CISO, you know, can I trust this person? If they're saying things are okay or they're saying things aren't okay, can I trust them? So you're a hundred percent right. Build up that you know, the, trust. The other Sorry. thing is, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll just reference the, uh, you know, I think it was for for RSA 2015. I used uh, one of the presentations I did for y'all was about learning the language and speaking in the language that the business uh, talks. And I hate the term alignment. That's a term that, you know, I hate to say kind of gets mocked by most people now. But I would just say it's the nomenclature, the phraseology. I, you know, I draw upon one particular example in my career. I was an ex, I was an Air Force intelligence officer. But before I did that, I was a pi- I was in pilot training, didn't make it through, but I knew how to talk like a pilot. And I knew how they talked and interacted. And as an intelligence officer, I could talk to a pilot, a fighter pilot, like they wanted to be talked to. I could talk operationally, I'd talk with my hands, do all these kind of funny things. But it's that kind of way. If you talk to a, you know, somebody on the business side and you understand the business and you can talk in their terms and then use the nomenclature – 
uh, a good example would be energy companies in Houston, right down the road from where we live. They couch security almost always in the terms of safety because they're safety conscious. So people die when they make mistakes. So much of what you know, information security, cybersecurity, whatever you want to call it, is they reference tangentially safety, saving people's lives. So I think that's very interesting. If you can account for culture and adapt the terminology, you will be much more successful. There's one more thing I would add to that. In addition to building up that trust in advance, absolutely, as John said, speaking to them and their language. The other thing is to make sure that you've engaged the board and your own security targets so that they actually become collaborative and agree on where your organization is going to be spending money for security in the next quarter, in the next six months, in the next year. And the reason for that is that we don't know where the next attack is coming from. And no company, well, maybe some lucky company out there, but very few companies have 100% of all the resources that they want for security. They have the, the exactly the budget they need, all the right people, everything so that they can get everything they absolutely want. Most companies have to prioritize and focus on implementations. They take a while to roll out. You've engaged the board, and these are the security targets we're going to hit. That can help a lot if something does go wrong, if there is a breach, because rather than the board saying, well, why didn't you prioritize patching? They can go back to, aha, none of us could see the future. We thought patching wasn't as important as some other project that was being rolled out. So we were part of this decision to prioritize one over the other, and that can go a really long way. Diana, let me let me ask you about that. You know, it's one of the things that I've found challenging over the years is when a concept turns into a buzzword, even even if it's legitimate and being used and and pervasive. How do you provide the right context to those security decision makers, to the board, to the CIO? You know, machine learning comes to mind, right? This is <laughs> this is a great one. You know, speaking for Britta and myself, looking on the other side, RSA conference, it's it's almost baked into every submission that comes yeah. that comes in. You know, it's like, oh, did I include machine learning in there somewhere? But it, obviously, you know, people are getting real results with machine learning techniques. It's it's not everything, and it's not going to kind of replace your whole security program. And and I'm just curious, Dan, let me, let me ask you first, if you think about the practical applications of machine learning where rubber meets the road, how are you seeing people applying it? And are you seeing them use one technique or multiple techniques? I'd love to get your view on that. Yes, uh, yeah, it is. It's almost it's it's become buzzword bingo, and we think about this a lot because there's a fine balance between uh, not trying to get too deep in the weeds with non-experts. On the other hand, you don't want to make it so squishy that it feels almost magical. You know, sometimes you hear people talk about machine learning, and it, it sounds to me like is that is that real? Machine learning is very very real, and. Uh, what we've seen very successfully for a lot of companies is to use a, a layered approach. So it doesn't mean that you just have a product with machine learning, but that you actually have machine learning embedded in and around the organization within devices, within the um, 
within the software that you've got running in the cloud so that you end up being able to leverage where they're, again, where the data is and where those models are going to be most effective. So you may have a, an endpoint device and the security, the, the, um, the security agent on that device that uses machine learning with the data it has at hand on the device and maybe data it's already pulled from the cloud, but it may not be able to make all of the, the decisions that you want to about a piece of malware. For example, with, with one piece of malware, DOFOIL or DOFOIL, we had um, insight on the, the endpoint with machine learning that identified immediately within milliseconds that it was actually malicious. But for something like Bad Rabbit, what happened on the endpoint with the learning was not enough to flag it as fully malicious, but as concerning. It then was sent into the cloud. It was run through the models in the cloud. That's where it was determined that it was actually truly malicious and then being blocked. So I, I think you're exactly right, Hugh, that it's going to be a, a case of bringing together different models at different points within the network and the workloads to be able to create um, you know, a better overall protection. So uh, I had a, di a slightly different uh, experience, and, and uh, I got to uh, host a peer-to-peer -peer discussion on uh, machine learning and AI. And uh, the general concept was, you know, are there enterprise-ready projects that lend themselves to machine learning? And out of the 25-odd attendees, uh, I think the consensus was that the vast majority of them were looking at machine learning and AI embedded in vendor products and had mm -hmm. yet to uh, apply machine learning to problems within the enterprise. So that's a, a strong distinction that came across loud and clear in that group. And there's a lot of stuff out there right now, uh, you know, about machine learning. And I pointed uh, the group to uh, a couple of HBR, Harvard Business Review articles about how to apply the concepts to quote-unquote, shovel-ready projects. But the funny story that came out of this is, of course, it was overused on the uh, the trade show floor, and the real quandary with the group was whether or not we, ha you know, uh, companies had to hire a data scientist to vet out vendor claims. <laughs> because everybody said they had machine learning, everyone said they had AI, but as soon as you asked, well, give me an example of how you do this different from hard-coded rules, Essentially, everybody said, I have no idea. And so on the vendor side, there weren't anybody that really could articulate it. And on the, the buyer's side, there really isn't anybody to evaluate those claims themselves at this point, at least across most of the clients. So that I think that was the one thing that I remember jumped out at me in my period uh, here. Well, you know, that's a good point. And I agree with you. Ask the vendor. With, you know, it does just go beyond magic because – the vendor, if they say they've got machine learning, they should also have really expert data scientists yeah. and be able to articulate how their models are working, what they're putting into the model, how they're supervising the model, all of that. Yeah, I Articul articulate in layman's terms, here's yeah. how it's different than hard-coded rules and use metaphors you know, do do whatever. But like if you, I actually had a discussion with a product manager from a, a very large company right before RSA prep for this peer-to-peer. -peer. And I said, well, you guys claim you do this. And he said, well, uh, yeah, that's proprietary. That's, that's our IP. And I was like, BS, you have to tell me how. And he essentially what he did is he went back and said, well, I've talked to the developers and we kind of do this. We look at patterns of badness and, okay, that's supervised learning. Okay, okay, that's, that's, that's what you need to tell people is how you yeah. start to understand what patterns of badness look so you can create that 
that line. But to say it's IP, you know, this is a product manager, not a sales engineer on the floor, not a salesperson. It's yeah. a somebody that probably should be able to articulate that. Uh, so I I, yeah. I fear that we are still there's a massive learning curve in industry and. Uh, I can. I think there are just out of my 25, for example, there are three people that consider themselves above a one or a two on the 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 you know the 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 curve. And this is a scale of one to ten. Uh, and I went around the room, one you know, on scale of one to ten, everybody one or two, and we had two or three people that were above that. And I and these were people that self-selected, were self-interested on the topic. Yeah, and in addition to the vendor being able to articulate. You know what the model is and what it's why it's better. You're right than than the sort of brittle, hard-coded rules. Also, if they can show either a proof of concept in your organization or at least explain, you know, what their own learning and testing has shown. You know how you've got that improvement with ML. Because you're right that the the end state is what matters. Is are we seeing problems and and insecurity and attacks within our organizations? Sooner, are we better at protect, defend, and respond? I, I want to believe. I want to believe, but I am. I, I quickly become okay. a person from Missouri <laughs> when we talk AI. Show me, show me, just show me. Perfect guide. Yeah, so it's that black box fairy dust that, and and, and we're we're sitting on the cusp of the review of the call for speaker process this year, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have some some new magic buzzwords that pop up too. But because of the passion around this, this I'm going to give you both a bonus question. And I'm going to start, John, with you, give Diana some time to think. And this, this just came to mind as you were talking, remembering among our guests on the keynote stage in Singapore, we had Sophia the Robot, um, who was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see this visceral application of artificial intelligence and thinking about, you know, thinking about the now application and five, 10 years down the road. Um, and that is a replay I'd, I'd definitely um, encourage our, our listeners to check out. But so my question first to you, John, then to Diana, in this brave new world of AI and machine learning, are humans being replaced or where does the human expertise fit in? I, th- I don't think they're being replaced. They're, I would, I would look at it more optimistically. Uh, first of all, we're talking in a normal environment, billions and billions of events of vulnerabilities and all that. It's allowing uh, you know, machines to do the repeatable and the, 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 the you know, humongous operations and, and freeing up the humans to do the, the really tough part, which is to create the model or to look at the, the genuine you know, anomalies uh, and I, I view it really positively from one uh, perspective, and that is it allows the defenders to close the gap. It allows you to defy more quickly. It allows you to do things and respond in a, in a predictable way, when, whereas the response cycle used to be hours or days. You can close that. So I, I do think there's a positive outcome from this is it allows smart humans to use you know, the, the machine learning or AI to do a lot more and to respond more positively within the attack cycle. Yeah, I, 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 exactly. There's, this is not the, the end of the humans. If you look at the cybersecurity skills gap, depending on which report you're looking at, but we've got between one and two million headcount shortfall by 2020 in cybersecurity. 
We've got dwell times, again, depends on which report, which time of day you're looking at it, but dwell times that are averaging around 90 days up to about 180, 200 days. So we've got a problem, and machines are incredibly good at pattern matching and looking for those patterns. So if we can be aided and assisted by the machines going through all this data, you know, petabytes of data, and help us see the patterns that are indicating reconnaissance activity and other attack type activity, that is just going to help the humans. And then the humans can go and do the harder stuff, the reasoning and the, the true logic kind of, and, and speaking back to the business and actually deciding, do we take this action or that action? Because there are trade-offs on both. So it's really about assisting the humans with this massive data rather than replacing us, at least for now. No. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, I love how you began that response because you, you said something like, this is not the end of humans. And then I was expecting you to continue with, Blockchain, however, is <laughs> but 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 you didn't but you didn't no, no. so and we we have we have unfortunately reached the end of our time and really a huge thank you to you Diana and to you John this has been a great discussion I love the framing at the beginning around data gravity and how folks should think about that I think some of the pointers you gave on how do we actually talk to people inside of security and outside the board, for example, how do we use analogies? How do we bring them into our world? And John, I loved your point of make sure the first time you talk to them isn't when you're asking them for money. You didn't yeah. say whether uh, whether the second time is probably uh, okay for that. But <laughs> <now> <laughs> um, and uh, really appreciated the thoughtful discussion at the end uh, on machine learning. I, I think um, Diana, to your point, there's a, a lot of questions around uh, how do we use it, where do we place it, is it one technique that rules them all, or is it going to be multiple? And John, I think you really kind of hit the nail on it when you talked about you know, people practically applying this stuff on scale and seeing, seeing results, but us constantly having to explain in simple analogies what is this doing? If we can't do that, then, geez, we don't understand it ourselves. So thanks thanks so much for being a part of this, and thanks so much to our listeners for joining us again. And thank you, Britta, uh, for being a spectacular co-host as always. And we look forward to seeing you all on the next episode.